All right, so we are in Hebrews chapter 4, and we are looking at verses 1 to 13 today. Last week was the rock of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Uh, And again, we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, which says this. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight." But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who, to whom we must give an account. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is indeed um, a two-edged sword that pierces our soul and spirit, that, that separates them, God, that separates our uh, flesh from uh, what you would desire for us. God, that convicts us and shows us where where we are trying in our own strength instead of relying on your completed work. When we are putting forth our effort instead of standing in the rest you have purchased for us. God, be with us now as we look at your word. May we be encouraged by it, by its faithfulness to speak boldly into our lives and to encourage and strengthen our faith. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so we've been in Hebrews uh, because of one little verse in our study of Acts, which is this, uh, speaking of Apollos in Acts 18.28, which says, For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Um, This understanding for us is that the Old Testament is the Scriptures referenced here, and so from the Old Testament, Apollos was testifying that Jesus was the Christ. New Testament hadn't been uh, given to the people that were hearing this message, and so the only Scriptures they had were the Old Testament. And from those Scriptures, Apollos was preaching, you see from the Old Testament that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things, that Jesus is the Messiah, the one come to save And so how do we see Christ, uh, how do we see the Christ was Jesus from the scriptures in the Old Testament? Well, we've started to see it as we unravel the book of Hebrews, which 
borrows richly from the Old Testament to describe Jesus as the Savior of the world. Last week, uh, we saw, again, that God is the rock of our salvation, and we saw parallels to Jesus in God's saving of Israel uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the wilderness. Uh, chiefly, we saw God standing before Moses and taking on the punishment that the people deserved at the rock of Horeb. In the song Exalting That, we see that, that God is declared as the rock of our salvation. You can see so, so fittingly this picture of Jesus. Just as Jesus was on the cross taking our penalty for sin, so God was standing before the rock at Horeb taking on the, the penalty for the sin of the people of Israel. We see Jesus and God as our Savior clearly portrayed in the Old Testament and completely fulfilled in the work of Jesus on the cross. So we saw that, but we also saw this, that even though you can experience the power of God, even though you can see God do a miraculous thing and see him do amazing things, it doesn't uh, give you an exemption from the deceitfulness of sin. When you have, we were talking about camp stories earlier before this, and you know, oftentimes it, for many uh, kids who grew up in Christian faith, uh, or families that went to church, or, or had friends that went to church, or whatever, went to camp, right? And uh, we always talk about the mountaintop experience that camp can be for kids. And, you know, you can have that amazing experience. And for us, it was called Youthquake in Colorado, and every summer, all of our youth group would pile in vans and go up to the mountains, and it was great. You know, we had this awesome experience, and everyone made these great commitments to the Lord, and they were like, yes, I'm going to live for Jesus all my life. And they'd come back to high school, and they'd, you know, do their deal and forget that experience that they had with the Lord. <clears throat> you can have an incredible experience of the power of God, but that doesn't exempt you from the deceitfulness of sin. We saw uh, last week that uh, as Israel was wandering in the wilderness, they come to the reason that they left Egypt in the first place, right? The, the, the edge of Canaan, and they're looking over this land that God has purchased for them, and they've seen God do miracle after miracle after miracle to provide for them and sustain them. And they look out over this land and say, you know what? <clears throat> These people are too big. We can't do this. <clears throat> they were deceived by their sin. They were deceived in thinking that God wasn't big enough for their circumstances and that they instead had a better plan uh, for themselves and, and for their future. <clears throat> We saw that we need to encourage each other daily with the gospel that God is our Savior, that we aren't our own saviors, that we, we don't save ourselves, that God has saved us, and we stand in Him. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While, while the Israelites quarreled against God, He became the rock of their salvation in the desert. So we saw that last week. Today we're going to see a couple things that are outlined in uh, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1 and one I want to hit on uh, throughout this, and it's been really a theme throughout uh, last week and this week, is that today, today is the time that we not harden our hearts. Today is the day of salvation. We don't, we don't look, we, don't, we aren't uh, conflicted about our past. Let that guide our today. We don't worry about our future. We worry about today as being the day of salvation. Today is the day that we have to uh, stand and strive uh, with faith uh, toward, toward the gospel. So we see these two things uh, about the day of salvation outlined in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. I'll pull that up here. It says, 
Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed it. So we're going to hit those two things as we look through chapter 4. First, the promise of rest still stands. There, there is a rest that still stands. What does that mean? Uh, we'll look at that in the first part of our passage. And second, uh, we should be respectful of the fact, where it says, let us fear, we should be respectful of the fact that some among Christian fellowship may not have faith in Jesus. That you can be associated with Christian fellowship and still lack belief in the rock of our salvation. As many were associated with Israel throughout their time in the wilderness, many of them also doubted that God was going to be able to provide for them. You can be associated in Christian fellowship. You can even call yourself a Christian if you want and take on that label and lack belief that God is your Savior, lack belief that He is the rock of your salvation, and still be striving in your own effort rather in faith to try and earn your way to heaven. Today is the day of salvation, and we must strive to enter the rest God provides in His Son. We must strive in the right way, and we'll look at that um, at the end of this. So first, this, the rest still stands verses 1 to 10, is really just a, uh, an argument stating that based on what Scripture proclaims in the Old Testament, we see that there is still a rest to be entered for the people of God, that the rest hasn't closed, that the, that the way into salvation is still open to the world, and that today is the time that we ought to be entering that, not worrying about the past or the future, but worrying about today and entering in to the, to the rest that God has for us. So we see this throughout verses 1 to, uh, 1 to 10, um, starting especially in, in verse 3. His argument sort of uh, begins there. He says, For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, But again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So what is he saying there? It's sort of like this convoluted argument, but basically he's saying that God said he had rested from his works, right? So God is in his rest. He is in his finished work. He has completed his uh, uh, program. Not that he isn't active in our lives anymore, but he has completed his creative work for us. It is there. And he is in his rest, the, the seventh day, in his rest. And yet, this, these first few verses say, and yet he says to them, they shall not enter my rest. So what is he saying? He's saying that I have rested from my works and you shall not enter my rest right now because of your disobedience. So the rest was still standing at that point, right? The rest was still available to the Israelites when, when God said, you shall not enter my rest. It was still available to them if they had entered it through faith. So his argument is, right, up until that point at least in in Israel's history, the rest was still available to them because his uh, warning to them or his rebuke of them was, you shall not enter my rest anymore because you have lacked faith in me. So God rested from his works on the seventh day. His rest is open now to the people of God. He is welcoming them in if they will have faith in him. And even up until the time of Israel in the wilderness, his rest is open, yet they lack faith to enter it. And so he says, you shall not enter my rest. So the the rest remains even to that point. 
Okay, so that's the first point. The rest was there until, uh, we know at least until the exodus and into the wilderness at this point, that the rest was available, but they denied it, right? So that's what the argument has said so far. Uh, Verse 6, it says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, verse 7, today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So the rest had remained until the Israelites were in the wilderness, and they rejected it and did not enter into Canaan. But thousands of years later now, David is proclaiming, today do not harden your hearts. He's giving them the same warning, saying that the rest is still open today. Do not harden your hearts to the rest of God. It is available. Why do we know that that is the case? He outlines it in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. God has entered his rest in in, uh, the seventh day of his creative work. He He has finished his creative work. Um, It is set from the foundation of the world, and that rest that he has entered is now available to us. It was available to the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness, and they looked over Canaan, and they had the opportunity to continue in faith with the Lord, and they rejected it. It was open when when David is proclaiming this again to, to his people and to those around him, saying, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the time of rebellion. Enter his rest. So then, verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So, what is the rest? What is it that's remaining? What is it that we're waiting to enter? I'm going to go over a, a few things that the rest is not, and then we're going to talk about what the rest is. Uh, first, the rest is not a temporal blessing. It's not a temporary blessing. The rest is not having, uh, having you know, uh, that new car roll up in, in your driveway because uh, it's just a blessing from the Lord. Man, now I'm going to have rest because I, I have this sweet blessing that I didn't expect. It's not it. It's not it. Even if God were to come and bless you with a beautiful new car and put it in your driveway, you know, the thing's going to get mileage on it. AC is going to go out. Tires are going to break. <laughs> I say that from personal experience and corporate experience that I know of. Uh, and uh, it's going to wear out, right? Regardless of how nice it is, it's going to wear out. It's going to break. Even if this blessing comes, this temporary blessing is going to wear out. It's going to, going to rust, and, and, and moth is going to destroy. And um, It's not temporary blessing. If you place your hope in it, it's going to fail you. It's not, it's not even temporary comfort. It's not temporary comfort of, of maybe people that might be around you, that might be, may help you feel comfortable. It's not even that. People also pass. People also go away. It's not about temporary comfort. For these that are hearing this message, for the Hebrews, 
uh, or for those that this, this letter, the Hebrews, is written to, these things are drawing them. They're calling to them. Uh, the opportunity to uh, walk in, in blessing of the world or in, in material blessing, uh, the opportunity to walk in comfort again is calling to them, okay? They're being persecuted as people who are proclaiming Jesus as Lord. They're being persecuted by Rome. And they have the opportunity to go back to Israel, go back to the land, and, and go back to people that they know and not be persecuted for saying Jesus is Lord. And instead, just be another Roman citizen in, in another part of the world. They could leave Rome and go back to their homeland and be in the presence of comfort and, and potentially even blessing. The cost of doing so is to reject Jesus as Lord and, and to leave their faith and to go another direction. The rest is not in temporary blessing or comfort. It's not even in uh, having peace. <laughs> We know in this world we will have trouble. Peace is not the end all of, uh, of our existence. Having peace isn't, um, doesn't solve our brokenness. You can, you can be a very peaceful person and, and have a lot of peace in your life and still not be trusting in God as your Savior. So it's not any temporary blessing or any sort of peace that you could gain in this world or, or comfort. It's, it's this. It's God's presence. Rest is the presence of God. And more specifically for us, as we look at this scripture and as we look at what Christ has done for us, rest is eternal presence of God bought for you on the cross. Rest is eternal life. I'm going to walk through a, a handful of verses that talk about what eternal rest is um, and what it looks like to us when we think about what God has bought for us in Jesus. If we place our faith in Jesus, this is what it is. It's, it's first, it's the, the absence of trouble. If I can get my verses right. I've skipped a few. I'm not used to this. <laughs> um, it's the absence of trouble. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 to 7 says this, Since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. God is going to relieve your trouble. He's going to relieve your affliction. He's going to repay those who are afflicting you. When Jesus comes and restores all things, all these afflictions and all these troubles that are coming after you, whether through people or through just worldly circumstance, are gone. The absence of trouble will be there in eternal rest. Revelation 21.4, the absence of pain, sorrow, and death. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither, the, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is eternal rest. No pain, no sorrow, no death, no trouble. Hosea 2, verse 18, the absence of conflict and harm. And I will make for them a covenant on that day, 
with the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. This is eternal rest, the absence of conflict and harm, the absence of pain and sorrow, the absence of trouble. Ultimately, the absence of the curse. Revelation 22, 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. No longer anything accursed. We live in a world that is cursed. Cursed by our sin. Cursed by us every time we sin. Not just by Adam way back when, but by us even still today. As we sin, we're cursing the earth. Cursing ourselves by not trusting in what God has done for us, but trusting in ourselves. But in heaven, there will be the absence of the curse. Nothing accursed any longer. So those are some things that will be absent in eternal rest. Let's talk about, the, about some things that will be. Psalm 1611, a beautiful uh, passage refreshment and satisfaction are in eternal rest. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's so hard to say a word like forevermore and really understand what, like the weight of that, you know? In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is eternal rest. This is eternal rest, being in the presence of God. John 14, 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be that where I am, you may also be in the very presence of God. And finally, Philippians 1.23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, so that is far, for that is far better. If we depart this earth as, as those who have placed our faith in Jesus, as we, those who have placed our faith in the rock of salvation, it is better for us to be in His presence now. It is a beautiful place, absent of pain and trouble and conflict and the curse, and fullness of joy is there in his presence. That's why Paul can say this statement that he's hard-pressed between staying here alive and dying and being in the presence of God because he realizes how beautiful it's going to be when he gets to be in the presence of God and in, enter that eternal rest. But why, is he, why then, if it's so great, is he hard-pressed between the two decisions? Because he knows there is work to be done here. He says, to live is Christ. That is, I've got more to do in laying myself down for the cause of the kingdom here if I live. If I die, then it is great. I am in the presence of God. These two are hard things. They are pressing him hardly. This is the eternal rest, the absence of trouble, pain, conflict, the curse and the presence of God. That's the rest that remains to us even today. It has been there available to those who had placed their faith in the living God since the beginning of creation. And we see 
throughout the Old Testament, uh, testimony ever testimony of people who have placed their faith in the living God. And when we get to chapter 11 of Hebrews, we'll see that great hall of faith, as we call it, where uh, the writer is exclaiming of the great faith of, uh, of the men and women of the past who have placed their faith in God and, and now have entered their rest. So the rest still stands for us today. And this, this passage from David is to be heard for us new again, that today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion but rather enter his rest. Verses 11 to 13 show us that we're to strive to enter rest. I've struggled with this word a little bit and how I'm supposed to talk about striving in something that I'm I'm not supposed to do by works. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because in... uh, when we talk about having faith in Jesus, uh, we always talk about it's not by works, right? That we're saved by faith. And so when I come across a passage that says, strive to enter the rest of God, I think I'm supposed to work to do it. I'm supposed to do work. I'm supposed to do something to earn my salvation. I'm supposed to strive to obtain my salvation by my effort. I think that's far from what he's saying. I think he is saying that, uh, that it, that it takes our concentrated effort, or that our, our concentrated mind, our concentrated spirit, even our focused, uh, um, focus of our personhood on what God has done. We shouldn't read this verse, verse 11, that says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest and think that it's a proclamation that we can earn our salvation, but rather that that entering the rest is not just some altar call or some mountaintop experience that, uh, that you've had in the past. It's not just saying a prayer and being ushered into heaven. So often we make Christianity uh, just this simple, uh, say your prayer and you're in, <laughs> you know? This, uh, you know, actually say your prayer and everything's going to be just roses for you. Life is going to be easy and beautiful and the blessing of God is going to flood over you every day of your life. That's like we really picture it that way a lot of times, that once we place our faith in Jesus, it's going to be perfect. No, no effort at all to it because it's by faith, right? So, you know, there's nothing I can do to have salvation. I just, I have it and, and life is good. Those hearing this message know what this is saying when it says strive to enter. You're being faced with, again, persecution and affliction and uh, the opportunity to maybe leave and find comfort somewhere else instead of in this faith that is keeping them saying something that everybody disagrees with. It's putting them in harm's way. Strive to enter. And we look back at the story of, of Israel in the wilderness and we say, man, don't they know this is the reason that they left the Exodus to go into Canaan and inhabit the land? It's easy to rain down judgment on them, right? And say, well, you guys should have got this together. Don't you know that your God is bigger than those guys? We didn't see those guys. We didn't walk through the land. We didn't see how huge their fortress was. We didn't see the walls of Jericho, you know? We cast judgment on them saying, well, you should have entered the rest. 
It's not, it's not easy. It's not. I'm not. We can't pretend that it was easy for them to make, for, for Caleb and Joshua to say, yeah, let's go do it. There's an element of faith. There's an element of belief that, that God is bigger than the very real circumstances that surround us, that, that God is bigger than the things that are coming to afflict us and, and harm us. As we pray every Sunday for a different country, typically from Voice of the Martyrs, where, where people are being persecuted for their faith, uh, striving to enter is uh, probably a very clear picture for, for people. We're saying Jesus is Lord might mean that you're getting your head chopped off. It might mean that you're being put in prison. It might mean that your family is taken away from you and you're put in jail. I mean, this is a reality for people. That as you proclaim Christ as Lord, and it was a reality for these Hebrews, that as they proclaim that Jesus is Lord, that they have faith that God has purchased for them eternal rest at the cross through Jesus, that they're putting themselves in harm's way by that proclamation. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. It's not about uh, earning your salvation. It's about having faith that God is bigger than all that is around you, all the very real challenges that are pressing in all around you. God is bigger than them, and that's good news for us. That's amazing news for us that, that God has defeated all the things that you look around and see that are coming, crashing down around you. God has defeated them and he's given you eternal rest. And should they completely crush you and you die, then you're great. You're in the presence of God. But should they not and you live, you proclaim the story that God is faithful and that he's defeated these things. We must strive to enter his rest. There are a few ways that we shouldn't enter his rest. It can't be entered compulsively. His rest can't be entered compulsively. If you are compelled or if you are entering the faith under compulsion, you'll be walking in religion rather than relationship. If someone uh, compels you to make a decision that you're not making, you're saying, that guy says it's right, so I'm going to follow that guy and do what he's doing and try and make my life fit into what it's supposed to look like, and that's called religion. That's called, I see that I'm supposed to go to church, so I guess I'm going to go to church, and then they're doing this Bible study thing, so I think I'm going to go to that Bible study, and uh, you know, it's not your own. You're, you're mimicking things. You're, you're mimicking what others are doing. You're entering under compulsion. You, you are compelled by someone to maybe make a decision and, and do these things, and it was never really your own. This is the difficult handoff for parents, right? We compel our children to, to walk in the way of the Lord, and that's a good thing. We should encourage them in the truth. But at some point as a person, you have to make the decision. You have to place your faith in Jesus. Just because you grew up in a Christian home doesn't mean you're automatically a Christian. This is a personal decision. It's not inheritance. <laughs> you don't inherit faith in Jesus. You might inherit uh, 
a family that has, uh, that has faith in Jesus, but, but you personally must place your faith. You must enter on your own placing your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not handed down through generations. This was a struggle for the Israelites. They, they thought that their relationship with God was just an inheritance. And, and, uh, and who was, I think it's uh, John the Baptist that says, um, God can make descendants of Abraham out of these stones. It's not about whose descendant you are. It's about who you're trusting. So you can't enter it under compulsion. You can't enter it um, through your heritage. You can't enter it culturally. Oftentimes we try and enter it culturally, especially in America. Everyone's like, yeah, I'm a Christian. And it's interesting around here, um, I've found, and again, we pray for this church often, and I think they're fabulous, and they're preaching the gospel, and they have a great legacy. They're 100 years old, uh, but everyone I meet that is a Christian uh, and maybe of Protestant background says, my church is Calvary. I go to Calvary. Really? You do? On Easter, you know, um, that's, that's my church. Or, you know, if you're Catholic, then you say, well, I go to the Catholic church. Christy ran into someone, said, yeah, I go to the Catholic church. Like, which, which one, <laughs> you know, do you go to? You know, we think that we're culturally just, like, have inherited it. it. Can't be entered culturally. If you try to enter the faith culturally, you will leave it when the culture leaves it. As soon as the culture says, ah, we don't need that label anymore, you're going to leave it too. You'll leave it behind. It's never going to be your own. Can't be entered compulsively, can't be entered culturally. It must be entered willingly. Hebrews 4.3 again uh, says, we who have believed enter the rest. For we who have believed enter that rest. And, and it might be better translated, for we uh, who have believed are entering that rest. We are entering it. We will enter it. it. It has been bought for us, and that's where we're headed. That's the trajectory of our lives, is the rest of God. We are entering it. It must be entered willingly. We must strive to enter it. So how do we strive? What does it look like to strive to enter the rest of God? Verses 12 and 13 shed a little bit more light on this. First, this, lay down your pretense and walk genuinely before the Lord. Lay down your pretense and walk genuinely before the Lord. Verse 13 again says this, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of, whom, of him to whom we must give account. Sometimes we walk around and act like everything's okay, everything's happy, everything's good. We go to church, put on a smiley face, uh, and, and, and don't share that things are falling down all around me, and life is difficult, and I'm not really, I'm having a hard time entering uh, with, by faith into the, the fact that God has defeated these things. Lay down your pretense. There's no hiding from God. He sees everything. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed. If we think that we can pretend <laughs> to, to put on this exterior that, that shows, yes, I'm a, I'm a Christian and I'm doing all the right things, 
we're joking with ourselves. It's, it's foolishness to think that we can fool God. So the first step to entering and striving to enter is to lay down your pretense. Lay down this veneer that you put around yourself to, to say that everything is okay and that you don't need anything, that you're doing just fine, thank you. Walk genuinely before the Lord because He sees all. The second is this, read God's Word <laughs> and believe it. Read God's Word and believe. Believe what it says about who He is, about what He's done for you, about who you are, about who you're meant to be. Verse 12 says this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts of and intentions of the heart. I don't know about when you read that verse or listen to that verse, like God's word is a sword that divides things that you yourself have difficulty dividing in yourself. You know what I mean? Like if I look at this, it's sort of hard for my, me to uh, sometimes separate my thoughts from the intentions of my heart. It's it all wrapped up in there, you know? Like, is that my heart or is that just a thought? It's difficult. Uh, soul and spirit, like very vague realities that I know are a part of me, but what part is my soul and what part is my spirit? What part is the thing that is going to find eternal rest and what part is my flesh that's crying out to do what it wants? How do I separate the two? And, and how do you separate the two? You read God's word and believe it because it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. You want to divide your soul from your spirit? Divide that which is uh, eternal from that which is temporal? Read the word of God and it'll show you. The Holy Spirit will convict you and separate these things. He'll separate the thoughts of your mind from the intentions of your heart and display plainly to you the way in which you ought to go. The word of God is living it's active. And remember, the people hearing this letter, the word of God for them is the Old Testament, okay? Oftentimes we think about the Old Testament as these old book of stories and, you know, these uh, happenings that, you know, sort of difficult things like war <laughs> and conquest and uh, uh, people dying in judgment and, you know, all sorts of things that are difficult to understand. It says... Those things are living and active, piercing our souls and our spirits, our joints from our marrow. And we can see why it's the case, right? Because we can look back at this story that we've been talking about for the past couple weeks and see that it is challenging even us to look back at the Israelites and think, wow, like they saw these amazing works of God and they still had a hard time trusting. And we have to put ourselves into their shoes and say they were facing such difficult realities that they were having a hard time believing that the God who walked them through the Red Sea will be able to walk them into the Canaan. 
That's how difficult the circumstance was around them. They walked through a Red Sea, a million people walked through the Red Sea, and they come to the edge of the land that was purchased for them in that Exodus, and they say, eh, I don't think we could go. That's how hard it was for them. And so instead of raining down judgment on them for uh, not having faith in God, we should realize, you know, we struggle in the same way. In spite of all the amazing mountaintop experiences that we've had, and I can tell you story after story as we talked about camps this morning, of amazing times I had on mountains with friends and, and worshiping Jesus and in the Word of God. I also have tremendous valleys where I was disowning my faith in God by sinning against Him time and time again, by not trusting what He had accomplished for me in the cross, and rather trusting in my fleshly identity. How do we enter the rest of God? We strive by faith to do it. We strive by faith to understand through God's word who he is, what he's done, and what he means for us to be. We've seen it so vividly already through Hebrews. We've seen who God is. Who is God? He's the creator of all the earth. He is Jesus. What was Jesus' nature? He's the prophetic voice of God. He's the one speaking to us. He's God's son. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of the world. He's the holder of the universe, the glory of God's presence, the revelation of God's nature, the sovereign over all the angels. That's Jesus. If we want to know what God is like, we look to our Savior and see Him. What is God like? He's like a king who has everything at his disposal and comes down and pays the debts of someone who is slandering him day after day after day. He says, I know that you hate me and don't understand me or whatever, but all your debt is gone. Will you follow me? Will you trust me now? I love you. That's what God is like. God is like Jesus, because that's exactly what Jesus did. He had all things in heaven. He's the holder of the universe the creator of the world, and yet he steps down into this life and takes on the punishment that we deserve. While we were enemies, he died for us. That's what God is like. Would you die for your enemy? We have a hard time dying for our friends, let alone our enemies. That's what God is like. He would die for his enemies. We must strive to understand a God that is that radically in love with his creation. That he would come and die for those who rebel against him. That he would come and take on flesh and bring them into an eternal inheritance. What is it like to enter the rest of God? It's to know how costly it was 
for God to purchase such an amazing thing for you at the cross. When we allow our eternal inheritance, and we talked about what eternity is like, again, absence of pain and suffering, of sorrow, of conflict, of the curse, full refreshment in God. When we allow our internal inheritance, that eternal rest in Christ to govern our daily pursuits, to govern this day of salvation, you're going to be faced with many battles even today against your faith that would persuade you to do this or that and not trust in God's faithfulness. Today, when we allow that internal inheritance in Christ to govern our daily pursuits, we're not stifled by the guilt of yesterday, so often comes rushing in on us when temptation comes. Oh, you're guilty. You're going to fail again. It's, you know, you're, you're an enemy of God. You're, you're going to mess it up. See, you've messed it up all these times. You're going to mess it up again. That's the lie of the enemy. We rest in the fact that God has purchased for us eternity through Christ. All that guilt of yesterday is wiped away and we can completely ignore it because we stand righteous in Christ. We're not stifled by the guilt of yesterday anymore when we rest in the eternal inheritance of Christ. And also, we're not fearful of the challenges of the future when we rest in the eternal inheritance of Christ. We can say, like Paul, man, if today I walk out there and some guy takes me captive and cuts my throat, or I get run over by a bus, or I get shot inexplicably by, you know, something, I'm going to be in the presence of God the Father. There is no challenge ahead that is too big for my God. There are no enemies in the land that are too big for my God to defeat. He has defeated them already. And my inheritance is eternal pleasure with God the Father. So no guilt of past, no worry of future can stifle me or paralyze me. I walk in the eternal inheritance of God today. We must enter the rest that God has provided for us. Is it easy? No, it's not. The challenges are real. They face us every day. But do we know how to do it? We do. Because we have a word that tells us who God is. We have experience that tells us who God is. He is a God who would lay down his life for us. And you are meant to be his son. And you are meant to be his daughter. And you are meant to be righteous. We can stand in that today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We do thank you that it pierces us to the division of soul and spirit, that it divides our joints from our marrow our thoughts from our intentions. God, may we realize what a treasure we have in the very word of God. That if we commit ourselves to it, if we, if we trust that your Holy Spirit will open up these words that are sometimes difficult to understand to us, that you 
will speak to us, that you will divide soul from spirit within us, that you will show us the way in which we should walk, that you will give us wisdom for the day. Thank you that that not only have you recorded it for us and provided it to us even now, but you lived it. You are the word. You came into life and you, you experienced the temptations that we are tempted with and you defeated them at the cross. You experienced them even further than us because you never gave in to them. And so they became more and more intense. You denied their power over you and you defeated temptation. You defeated death at the cross. Thank you, God. And you are the word made flesh. And if we don't even understand these pages and these 66 books, we can't understand that God came down and died on a cross for our sins in Jesus. And as I place my faith in him, he gives me an eternal inheritance that will not fade, that will not be destroyed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.